Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, Victor's co-host from the opposite end of the generation spectrum. I'm also the co-host of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law Podcast with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and Kimberly Atkins-Store, and the wearer of Hashtag Jill's Pins. And today's pin is in honor, again, of Ukraine. And I'm going to wear a Ukraine pin as long as I possibly can until they are free again from the invasion that they are now being bombarded with. Vladimir Putin's unjustified, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine is top of mind for all of us now. In just over two weeks, we have witnessed the deaths of innocent civilians, the flight of millions of Ukrainians from their home because of constant shelling, and the deliberate destruction of water, gas, and electric service. And the worst part is that there seems to be no end in sight. The question that so many have is, first, when and how can Putin's war in Ukraine be ended? And second, is there any way to hold him accountable for what looks to all of us to be crimes against humanity? That's what made me think about what laws Putin might be violating and whether any legal organization or process can be used to stop him before he flattens Ukraine and kills millions by military assault. Or is there nothing to do except to hold him accountable after the damage is already done in the hopes that it will deter future wrongdoing? These are questions that have very complicated answers, but they are questions that our guest today is perfectly suited to answer. Our guest is Rachel Van Landingham, who is a national security law expert and a former Judge Advocate General in the U.S. Air Force. She is now a professor of law at Southwestern Law School Procedure and where she teaches criminal law, constitutional, criminal, national security law. Currently, she is also the president of the National Institute of Military Justice, which deals with the exact issues that we want to talk about today, the issues of war crimes and the law of war. And she has also served in another capacity that makes her qualified to talk about this. She was the chief of international law for the headquarters of the U.S. Central Command under Generals Petraeus and Dempsey during the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. Prior to coming to Southwestern, she taught law at Stetson University College of Law and was the deputy head of the Department of Law and an assistant professor of law at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We are very grateful to have with us today, Professor Rachel Van Landingham. Thank you for being here. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me here, Jill. It's my honor. All right. Thank you so much for being here. So let's start um, using your expertise. Um, can you give us a brief overview of what laws uh, have relevance to what's um, going on right now in Ukraine? Well, there are two primary bodies of law that have the most direct relevance. And the first one is what's often called the use ad bellum, the law re regulating uh, the resort to the use of force. I mean, how did Russia get to invade a neighboring country? The answer is it didn't get to. It had no legal authority. In fact, it's strictly prohibited uh, to invade a, a neighboring country to use force against the territorial integrity or political independence of, an, of a sovereign nation state. That law is enshrined in the modern law today as in the UN Charter, the United Nations Charter, which of course was a huge reaction to nation states doing exactly that in World War II, of course preceded by World War I. So the United Nations Charter sets up the legal framework on the international stage, telling states you don't get to use force just because you want the country next door to you, or you have an excuse that you supposedly want to help the people next door to you. No, you get to go to the United Nations and ask them for help to resolve your disputes peacefully. So the United Nations Charter is established to provide collective security for the world with all of the parties agreeing, no, we're not going to use force to get what we want anymore. Of course, that, that's, a, that's utopian a bit, and unfortunately we're seeing the utopian aspect today, but this is directly linked to, to an international crime, really the crime of all crimes, that is the crime of aggression. And that's what uh, Vladimir Putin and the, the state of Russia is committing at this moment which is violating the United Nations Charter prohibition against using force to get what you want 
um, uh, and in, and uh, trying to acquire territory next door. And so that is considered the crime of all crimes because within it, once you kick off the war, um, then there are other crimes that maybe and often do often do flow. And so that leads me. I, I said there were two two area two major areas of loss. The second one is you know first of all the resort to the legality or here the illegality of resorting to to war to the armed force against a fellow nation state. The second one is, well, once war is kicked off, um, the law is not silent in the times of war, despite what Cicero said about 2,000 years ago. There's been, uh, there's been law and rules governing the conduct of warfare since there's been war, um, since man started hitting each other with, with a rock. Um, but it's the most developed that it ever has been today, and that's because it's in response to the horrors that have preceded us. So this law, law is called, in general, to international law, called the Laws and Customs of War. It's also called the Law of Armed Conflict, and it's also called International Humanitarian Law, even though I have to admit there isn't that much humanitarian about it because it allows for a great deal of violence, but it's regulated violence. Um, and that applies equally to all parties that are engaged in an armed conflict. So despite the fact that Russia is in the wrong, and that they are the aggressor, that they're committing the crime of aggression. Well, individually, there's leaders of the country that are committing the crime of aggression, and we'll get to talking about accountability for them later, hopefully accountability. The soldiers on the ground, it doesn't matter, right? There's, it's a bifurcation. It doesn't matter that they're in the wrong. They still have to abide by the laws of war. They're not responsible for the crime of aggression that Putin is committing and his cronies up at the Kremlin. They're responsible for their individual conduct and in obeying the basic laws of war, which means don't target civilians. Unless those civilians are targeting you at that moment, for the most part, civilians are off limits. Civilian buildings are off limits. Go target that tank as much as you want. Go drop the bombs on the Ukrainian army as much as you want. And then they would be, they're given what's called combatant immunity. They're not responsible for that overall crime of aggression on that, that other plane of the law. That's for the leaders to be involved in. They're responsible for their conduct. So there's incentive to regulate the, the actual conduct of warfare and the protection of persons that are caught up in war, such as prisoners of war, civilians that are caught up in war. The incentive is that those that are following it will, will be given that immunity for what they're doing. So, so they are considered this really, some folks think really artificial distinction between the, between going to war and then actually engaging in war. There's a nexus and the overlap is for those people in charge, right? There is no lawful military objective for them because it's all disproportional. Um, and I've written about that extensively uh, in an in a article a few years ago, but that's the basic lay of the land regarding international legal resort to war. And then you have the illegality of resort to war. And then you have a huge uh, plethora of laws that govern what actually goes on in warfare. So can I just ask you, is there ever a legitimate legal reason to go to war? Yes. Under the United Nations Charter, there, there are two legitimate reasons. One is when the United Nations Security Council blesses off and says there's been a breach or a, of the international peace and security or a threat to international peace and security. Um, I'm looking at you, Saddam Hussein, going into Kuwait. Uh, or I'm looking at you, um, uh, Al-Qaeda, after 9-11. Uh, and then the UN Security Council uh, can pass a resolution and authorize it, the member nations to use armed force against the terror in, in, in a way that would otherwise be a breach of the United Nations Charter. The second uh, legal use of uh, the use of force against a neighboring state uh, would be in self-defense. That's Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, it recognizes that not everybody's going to follow these rules. Um, and it may take a while for this big behemoth of the United Nations to get its act together to come to everyone's collective aid. So it recognizes that in a case of an armed attack, nothing prevents or you know, it hampers the right of a state uh, to use armed force in, in response. And it doesn't have to wait to be attacked, not in this day and age of nuclear weapons. Um, but the attack has to be imminent. The response has to be proportional, has to be necessary. So, for example, if we think that if Israel thinks that Iran has a capability to develop a nuclear weapon and is going to have one within three months, that's not an imminent enough threat to justify Israel going in and attacking attacking Iran. They need to go to the United Nations um, and they need to use diplomatic measures first before it becomes necessary. So the closer that window, you know, the shorter, the more that window closes, right, the greater you get to, ooh, is it reasonable to think there's, it's necessary to use armed force in defense of uh, facing an imminent attack. So that's that Article 51 
uh, self-defense, the right to use self-defense. But it's it's supposed to be the limited self-defense, just like you and I would have on the street if someone comes and attacks us. We're allowed to resort to self-help when we have to, but when we don't have to, we call the cops. The problem is calling the cops on the international stage, there are no cops. There's the UN Security Council and with the five permanent members with China and Russia on there, they're not calling the cops. They're not going to allow the cops to come to this one. So the rest of the world and the it has to figure out how do we do this outside of the United Nations Security Council apparatus. And that that's a hard place, a very hard place okay, to be so in. Before we get to that, which is a very interesting question, I just want to clarify and make sure I understood. In the case of the law of aggression, the crime of aggression, if you have UN Security Council uh, permission to attack, then you're not violating that. But you still could commit war crimes if you then targeted civilians, for example. So you yes. can have a war crime without having the crime of aggression. But yes. I also want to... violating the UN Charter, essentially, um, whereas war crimes are serious violations of laws of war, um, which are separate and distinct, and we'll go into that under the Geneva Conventions, Hague Regulations, and the plethora of laws that apply. Okay, that's what I wanted to, to just clarify and make sure we understood. Okay. A nation like the United States could lawfully be in a country and engaging in armed conflict lawfully under the use ad bellum, the UN Charter, but be engaging in it in an unlawful manner, for, ex manner, for example, uh, committing torture. I'd like to mention one other legal basis for being in another country and using force. It's not an exception to the United Nations uh, Charter, but it's, it is another basis, and that's consent. For example, right now, the United States is engaging in there. We still have forces in Iraq where we were there with the consent of Iraq. So we're not violating the UN Charter's uh, uh, prohibition in Article 2.4, which says uh, no nation state, you know, nation will use uh, force against another, uh, threaten another nation's territorial integrity or political independence. We're there at their consent. So, but we are using force in another nation state. So that kind of gives you a third basis for using force, but it's not considered an exception to the UN Charter, but it's one that the United States and other countries rely on uh, to engage in armed conflict in another nation. Um, because they're asked, they've asked us to help. So there seems to be no justification for Putin doing this, which is, I think, why a few days ago the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said that Russia's action toward Ukraine constitute war crimes. And so I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit more about where those are codified? Sure. So we'll leave aside the crime of aggression for a moment, the crime of aggression being you know, violating the fundamental precept of not using armed force against a, another nation, but the actual war crimes themselves. So war crimes themselves flow from the use in, in Bellow, the law, the law of armed conflict. Um, and they come from the, the most the Geneva Conventions, which first came about in, uh, in 1864, uh, the, mo the modern formulations in 1949. But the Geneva Conventions and their, their additional protocols, they have supplemental um, treaties that supplement them that were signed in the 1970s. Um, they focus, the Geneva Conventions primarily focus on the protection of those that are considered hors de combat, um, individuals that are caught up in the conflict, such as uh, 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 prisoners of war. That's the entire Third Geneva Convention and, what, and how detaining parties have to treat prisoners of war. The Fourth Geneva Convention deals with things like occupied territory. What must a state do when it has control of, and usually it's military, control of um, a, a nation, citizens of another, of another, of another state? because they've, they've taken over that territory in that war. The additional protocols, though, start to bring in, in particular additional protocol one, the rules governing um, uh, actually bombardment, targeting, and all this kinetic action. Those go back and are supplemented to uh, what, are, what are called the Hague regulations. And so I'm gonna go back a moment because the war crimes really, you can't describe what a war crime is until you describe what does the law prohibit? Because the most serious prohibitions called grave breaches under the Geneva Conventions, um, those that, that you, you have to understand what, what's prohibited first. So, so going back to the 19th century, then in the 19th century, we had the U.S. Civil War. And during the United States Civil War, President Lincoln commissioned the very first attempt at a codification of the existing laws of war. He wanted his um, Union Army to go out there and do things the right way. Um, there were a lot of issues regarding, okay, what about these civilians that suddenly pick up arms and start fighting us? Do we, do we just get to hang them right, shoot them right away? What do we have to do with these folks? Um, and so Francis Lieber sat down. He was a law professor, uh, but he's also a, a combat, wounded combat veteran from the Prussian Wars. 
um, he sat down and wrote the, what was called the Lieber Code, and that became general instructions to the Army, and that was the first time a, a, a nation had sat down and said, hey, look, we're going to actually write this stuff down and train our forces on, on what we can do and what we can't do in war. Um, and that provided a basis for um, uh, and was emulated in the Hague Regulations in 1899, followed in 1907, and the Hague Regulations govern uh, things like who do you target? Um, how do you engage in a bombardment or a siege, which unfortunately siege warfare in some aspects is is still lawful, um, and 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 created these rules that are still present today. The additional Protocol One to the Geneva Conventions, even though the United States is not a party to it. The United States and many nations believe that it forms what's called customary international law. Therefore, that additional protocol lays out things like you will not intentionally target civilians, period, right? That period, black and white. You don't target civilians unless they're targeting you. They're directly participating in hostilities. But that, so this goes back to there are so many rules that are considered, you know, violate or rules that say this is what you can do and can't do in war, but they can be distilled to some basic principles. So if we have a moment, I'd like to go over some of those basic principles because they really clarify what can and can't be done in war. And there, there are you know, numerous permutations and nuances but the principles get the get the point across. And the principles are found not just in treaties, but they're found in what's called customary international law, which is something really important for your audience to understand. Something doesn't have to be written down for it to be prohibited. You don't have to have Russia to be a party to one of these conventions for their actions to be prohibited. However, Russia, just like every other nation state in the world, is a party to the Geneva Conventions. Um, and the additional protocols have gained, a particular additional protocol one has gained the strength of of uh, customary international on most of its prohibitions. For example, one of the, the greatest principles of the, of the laws of war is the principle of distinction. It's one I've already mentioned several times in passing. That is the world, the law, the battlefield is divided between those you can kill and target and just things you can destroy and things that you can't. The things that you can't are the civilians. The purposes of the laws of war are to reduce suffering in war. Suffering primarily by those caught up in war, civilians, but also suffering by those who were engaged in war, the soldiers, sailors, etc., but are no longer in the, in the fight anymore because they're incapacitated because of sickness or, or wounds. The, the initial Geneva Convention um, was, was really uh, promulgated, uh, fomented by uh, individual Henri de Nantes, uh, a Swiss a man that traveled to the, the battle the battle of Solferino in Italy, and he saw hundreds of wounded men bleeding out, dying on the battlefield, and he was horrified. He's like, how do we help these guys? Um, so anyways, that, that translated into, there's a principle of distinction in the laws of war that says, uh, that requires the parties to distinguish between and distinguish themselves between civilians who are not to be targeted and civilian objects and, milit and military members um, and military objects. So that principle of distinction is really important. It's one of the reasons why militaries, professional modern militaries, wear uniforms. They wear uniforms to say, I'm the target. Target me. Don't target my mom up the street. She is a civilian or my dad, right? I'm the target. And so in order to gain what I mentioned earlier, which is this thing called combatant immunity, um, that is normally if you go up to someone and kill them, that's murder. We put you in jail for it. But in war, a soldier, a, a legitimate combatant, a lawful combatant, can kill another lawful combatant, and it's not, it's not murder. Why? Why do they get that pass? They get that pass if they follow the laws of war, if they distinguish themselves from civilians and only target the military objectives they're supposed to be targeting. We give them a pass, right? So those soldiers, those Russian soldiers right now, many of them could have combatant immunity if they follow the laws of war. That if they're wearing their uniforms like they're supposed to be, and importantly, that they're targeting true military objectives. That's one of the issues, and that's why you went back to the ambassador to, to the UN saying there are war crimes being committed, because what we're seeing on the news are images and, and direct evidence of the Russian military targeting civilians. A maternity hospital is not a lawful military objective under the laws of war. That completely violates the rule of distinction, uh, or the, the rule of that flows from distinction, which is you're going to target the military target and not the, not the uh, maternity hospital, the civilian target. But so distinction is key. But, but I want to look at a few more principles. One is military necessity. Military necessity says, hey, military, you can do whatever you need to do to, pr to, to prosecute this war effectively and quickly, as long as you don't violate the, the other laws that we put out. 
We have certain laws that we've already considered to, uh, into the laws of war, such as don't target civilians unless they're targeting you. Um, so you don't get, just because you think if you raise the city, it's going to be, be the end of the war faster for you. That's not what military necessity allows. But military necessity is the license, the justification for, yes, you can target all of those, uh, the, those uh, military members who are sleeping in their barracks. You don't have to wait for them to be firing at you. You get to target them lawfully, even when they're asleep. And we, we prefer to target people when they're asleep because then they're not, they're not fighting back. That's justified by military necessity. So going after the tanks, the weapon depots, um, the supply lines, the actual military combatants, those, those in uniform that are distinguishing themselves. Or, you know, it's difficult when you're dealing with, a, with a non-state armed groups that don't distinguish themselves. Then you have to use everything based on intelligence and whether or not they're a member. Unless they're shooting at you, then you can shoot at them. Um, but military necessity allows for those means and measures in war that are not otherwise prohibited. But it's balanced, and so that's that's principle. There's the principle of distinction, the principle of humanity. It's also called unnecessary suffering, and it's really the yin to the yang of military necessity. Humanity balances out military necessity because it says you don't get to do everything that you want to do. We're going to say that there are some things that are just off limits. Means and measures of war are not unlimited, and you have to you have to abide by this. And that's also buttressed by this idea of honor, the idea that um, that there there are there there are prohibitions in the law and and, the, and that regulate the governing of warfare, and you have to abide by these and recognize that. And if you don't, you're going to be held accountable later. Um, but so humanity says you don't get to do things that, for example, um, cause unnecessary suffering. When an, a military in, uh, soldier is taken out of the fight because they're wounded, once they can no longer fight back, you don't get to continue to attack them. They, you have to protect them. They're considered a protected person at that point. Why? Because it's not military, militarily necessary to continue to kill them. You've done your job. You took them out of the fight. You, you could have killed them initially, but you didn't. Instead, you wounded them or you captured them. That means you now have to protect them. Right? That's what humanity does, the idea of unnecessary suffering in humanity. Um, it buttresses that military necessity and says, ah, military necessity up to a point. Once that military necessity is over, um, then you have to protect these folks. But the idea of humanity is also what undergirds this entire Geneva tradition of the laws of war, which is you're going to protect those people that are under your control, the prisoners of war, the civilians who are caught up in the fight. Um, everybody that is within your control, you're going to treat humanely. That flows from the fundamental principle of, dis of humanity. The prohibition against torture, black and white. Uh, military necessity is not an excuse for torture. Uh, torture flows from the principle of humanity. There are certain things we're just not going to allow to be done in war. Um, and, and, and torture is, is, is prohibited outside of this war as well. And we can get to that. We get to crimes of humanity. Um, so, Rachel, let me ask you something, though. Because you're listing things that I see on mm -hmm. television. I mean, to me, there's no question of the evidence of these war crimes. But, and you mentioned accountability, but that's accountability after the fact. Is there anything that can be done to stop these violations of the rules of war or the rules of armed conflict or what are war crimes? Usually winning, vanquishing those that are violate, the, the violators, and then bringing them to justice afterwards. I mean, that's how we established um, really the first modern international criminal war tribunal, uh, which was Nuremberg uh, following uh, World War II. And the four, the four victors, the United States, the Soviet Union at the time, Stalin, um, the United Kingdom, and France got together and said, we're going to bring account. We're going to have accountability where we can and how we can. And they announced that prior to the end of World War II, perhaps to send a little bit of a deterrent signal. This is similar to what um, the United Nations did. The UN Security Council established the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia as the war in Serbia was still raging. Right. As a message, they were hoping for some deterrence. It didn't really stop Slobodan Milosevic. Um, who wound up being tried in the internet in the what we call the ICTI. Um, he was never convicted because he died before he could. Um, but I think it's not about instantaneous deterrence because often there can be a boomerang effect of it's just going to retrench them. But it, or, 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 or you know, we would hope that there would be deterrence. But I think it's more about the long term entrenchment of these norms that we are not going to tolerate that and tolerate this. And I think 
bringing attention to it, like the, U, or the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations just did, um, and other heads of state and officials are doing, calling it out as it is and saying clearly, this is a violation. We don't fight like this. We know that you're doing it now, but we're going to call it out and continue to call it out and build a record and accumulate evidence and, and start the gears of some international accountability mechanisms going, which are already starting, and we can, we can move to that in a moment. Um, but I'm not a big believer that there's going to be much to be done right now to stop it, because if, if a country is willing to do this, to do the engage in these kind of actions, um, you know, you would hope that there would be internal pressure to stop it. Right. But that that hasn't always that hasn't borne out. There have been some icy international criminal court indictments that scholars have, have said have uh, posited that perhaps had some moderating effect regarding the Lord's resistance army um, and crony um, in Africa. But but again, I think it's it's less about, you know, indicting Putin right now isn't going to stop what he's, what he's doing, it seems. Right. And and he could be indicted in absentia and tried in absentia. Uh, but a, as you pointed out, the Nuremberg trials were holding people accountable, but it was after they had lost, after they had been vanquished and captured. And so they were in the possession of the victors. Whereas right now, how would you even think about arresting Vladimir Putin and getting him in front of a court for a due process trial. There really is no way until he is militarily defeated. And if he never leaves Russia, if he's not defeated, is there any way to hold him accountable? Well, so let's back up it before, so I don't want to put the apple before the cart, the cart before the horse. Um, I want to look at the cart first, and which is what, what are some accountability mechanisms? What are some legal mechanisms to provide accountability mm -hmm for things like we discussed very briefly war crimes, but there's also something called crimes against humanity. Um, crimes against humanity, every time you have a war crime, it's a, it's a, every time there's a crime against humanity, if there's a war going on, and it happened within the context of the war, it will probably also be a war crime, um, but, not, but the inverse is not true. So crimes against humanity involve actions that are taken as part of a widespread or systematic attack against civilian population. So a war crime can be one instance of intentionally bombing a, a you know a civilian home for example mm -hmm. um whereas that whereas uh, crimes against humanity have to be systematic have to be widespread so attacks against a civilians you know murder uh, extermination um, deport forced deportation torture rape those are all but there it's part of a widespread and systematic attack um, against a civilian population but it does not require you know, being in, in wartime so it's war or peace um, and it's also broader. It's where war crimes be, can be committed against combatants as well as, as civilians. Of course, crimes against humanity are really focused on, on civilians. Um, and so those are some of the distinctions. There's often going to be an overlap, um, as, you, as you see here. Um, and, so, so we're, if, and then we have the crime of aggression, which we talked about. Um, and then we have genocide. So, of course, genocide you have is the intention, you know, the intent to destroy or eradicate an entire um, group of people based on their on their race, their ethnicity, their nationality, or their or their religion. And so, those are the four big crimes. They're called the crimes of their atrocity crimes. Um, and so, genocide didn't develop as a international crime until right after World War II. Um, uh, Lemkin developed the the, uh, the exact vernacular, and the, the world agreed to this in the Convention Against Against Genocide. Um, but the other crimes, for example, crime of aggression, which was called a crimes against peace, um, crimes against humanity, and war crimes were tried successfully at at Nuremberg following following World War II. But what, so what happened afterwards? So we still had, had some wars. Um, so did we, and so there was a push for a long time to develop a standing criminal court, international criminal court to deal with these kind of things. Why was there that push? Well, there, we've had what are called um, ad hoc tribunals that were, that were stood up under the authority and by and Security Council. So we actually had the UN Security Council getting along um, in order to stand up a tribunal and fund it to provide accountability for both the, the war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide that all occurred in the course of the Serbian War. Um, so you had folks like um, Radovan Karadzic, 
who was who was convicted of crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes. The war crimes, you know, first one of them was the shelling, the siege of Sarajevo that went on for years and killed thousands of civilians. Um, so, you know, and then on top of that, you have the genocide, the Srebrenica genocide of almost seven thousand um, Muslim Bosnian uh, Bosniak um, men and, and boys that were that were um, the genocide that, that genocide that were murdered. Um, and so he went, he uh, was convicted for that at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia that was this ad hoc tribunal established by the UN Security Council. So was his military leader, Rodko Mladic, um, also for those, for those same crimes. Um, so you've, we've had definite instances where the international community under the UN architecture got together to provide a tribunal for a personal individual criminal responsibility for their actions. Because while we say, well, Russia is at war with Ukraine, Russia is made up of individuals and Russia can't do anything unless these individuals act. So at, at my heart, I am a, a, a law professor, a criminal law professor. I teach brand new law students basic criminal law. Um, and basic criminals about criminal laws about individual responsibility for actions, and that's something that Nuremberg really cemented, which is it's not just the state; it's the individuals who compose the state, comprise the state. So anyway, so and so then you had the International Criminal Tribunal um, for Rwanda, which was another ad hoc special tribunal established by um, the United Nations Security Council. Um, then we've had some hybrid type tribunals, which were um, such as the one in Cambodia, in which the UN helped, but it was a domestic, uh, and for, for truth and reconciliation purposes and domestic legitimacy pur purposes, domestic um, trials and domestic tribunals set up in Cambodia, but with the with resources, um, with help from the United Nations so that, and there was one like that in Sierra Leone, um, and, and then, and so we have these, you know, hybrid versions. So, of course, we're not going to have an ad hoc tribunal established by the UN Security Council for the war of aggression that Russia's perpetrating right now against Ukraine. Why? Because Russia is a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council and could veto and, and would veto it. And perhaps China, um, depending on how allied China is going to be now, um, perhaps China would too. So, so there are some so there's another basis for jurisdiction and some mechanism, which would be domestic jurisdiction by states. Um, but before I go there, let me go back. I'll, I'll go back to the ICC. Right now, the International Criminal Court is investigating, has launched a formal investigation into um, the actions of, of Russia within Ukraine territory. Ukraine is not a party to the International Criminal Court, neither is, neither is um, Russia. But Ukraine, following the, uh, the, uh, the illegal annexation of, of Crimea, um, by Russia in 2014 and Russia fomenting of, of the, uh, the armed conflict within the Donbass, Ukraine used mechanisms to, to provide, went to, it provided jurisdiction since 2014 to the International Criminal Court. So crimes that are committed on Ukrainian territory, the International Criminal Court does have jurisdiction over everything except for the crime of aggression. Why not? Because the crime of aggression wasn't added to the list of crimes, to war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, and genocide until 2017, and it has special jurisdictional components to it. So ICC has had but, um, numerous me, state parties me, that have gone to it now and said, "Mr. Prosecutor, we want you to we want you to investigate." So instead of having to go through a preliminary examination and then go to a higher uh, level um, uh, pretrial chamber decision to refer this to a formal investigation. The prosecutor right now is formally investigating um, various various kinds of atrocity except for any... ask you something because the U.S. also is not a party to this anymore. Um, so... And it never was. We signed it, but then we never ratified it. it was right. So, the, but the point is, and of course we're guilty of anything, not in front of the court in any way. We're not at this point. Uh, so there's nothing to talk about. I just thought it was worth mentioning. But to the extent that Russia is and hasn't given jurisdiction, so what would happen? The ICC investigates, and then so what? What's the enforcement mechanism? They can issue indictments because the jurisdiction for, for subject matter is, is the fact that they, it's, they happen on Ukraine's territory, and Ukraine gave jurisdiction to the, um, to the ICC. And so there could be arrest warrants. There could be indictments. But then you get to the enforcement mechanism, right? Um, and the right, enforcement mechanism is, okay, unless 
Russia is vanquished, like Germany was in World War II, um, it would, you know, it was going to be difficult to get to get Mr. Putin in the in the in the docket. Difficult and often impossible. But it's not just Mr. Putin, right? There are other individuals that 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 uh, that may be uh, may be indicted for various crimes in Ukraine, and then those individuals wouldn't be able to travel. Um, so I'd like to go back to there's a mechanism in the Geneva Conventions that was considered incredibly important, and that is it created some duties, the duties to prevent um, violations of the of, of the Geneva Conventions, violation war to prevent war crimes, so specifically grave breaches, to repress them when you see them occurring, to immediately stop them, but then to punish them, right? The, to punish them, and part of that punishment was states or state parties, the Geneva Conventions are obligated to find violators of the Geneva Conventions and either try them themselves, right, under what's called universal jurisdiction, which is, which is a very unique type of jurisdiction. Normally, nation states will try their own citizens for, for crimes that are committed on their own territory, or even if it's not their citizens, it's on their territory. Then their citizens for crimes or wherever those citizens commit them. And then passive nationality, passive nationality which is if one of the U.S. citizens is, is killed um, by a Canadian in Canada, we could ask for and extradite that that Canadian to try them because one of our citizens has, has been the victim there. Um, and then there's you know, there's a then there's protective um, uh, jurisdiction which deals with you know if if an action outside misconduct outside the United States directly interferes with or substantially impacts the national security or the operation of the U.S. government. Um, but typically, it's you know for stuff here or for one of our citizens or they're the they're the victim. But universal jurisdiction says that wherever a war crime occurs, you're a state part of the Geneva Convention. You will either if you will find them, and if they're in your territory, you will try them, or you'll give them right. You'll give them to a state that has the ability to try them. Um, so there has that ever happened? Have, has, have, has a state ever yeah. held anybody accountable? Well, the United States used to do this with pirates. It hasn't used exercised universal jurisdiction in a long time. But Germany, just this year, a few months ago, convicted a former colonel in the Syrian military who ran an interrogation and detention facility, um, was accused of torturing you know, thousands of individuals, and he was convicted convicted for it. And part of it was under the basis of, and it wasn't because German citizens were, were being tortured there. So there was no nationality, no passive personality jurisdiction there. It was because this idea of you committed torture and torture, there is universal jurisdiction for torture and we have a, a legal duty to try you. Um, and so- But I, how did they get his him to punish him? I mean- Finding someone guilty because he, who he lives was, in Syria, he was traveling because he thought he had he was he had impunity, and so therefore there's a message being sent. Oh, you might not have impunity because you know we're going to find, and that's what's one of the important things about documenting what's going on right now. That's what's important about even if Putin is never held accountable personally, the fact that there's records being set right now. An investigation means looking for evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and accumulating it and, and chronicling it. We wouldn't know as much as what we do about, about Germany's horrible atrocities during World War II, but for the Nuremberg trials, and not just the famous Nuremberg trials by the, the International Military Tribunal, but, uh, for example, the United States tried almost 200 um, Germans in, in under um, at the same palace, um, at the same place in Nuremberg. Uh, but... For, for additional funds and not just military members, but leaders of the industry, etc. And with that, we compiled incredible repositories of data, of evidence, of history to show what exactly happened so that historians and others could go through this and learn from it. So, and it gave a voice to victims. This as well, for some, even though many, of course, in World War II could never be given a voice to. Um, but I just want to highlight that there may be other goals bes- besides just providing for an individual through the so through setting these mechanisms into motion, um, and part of it is the preservation, the preservation of, of of the evidence and providing a chronicle, and it's and it's the reinforcement of the norms. Because if we just say, okay, we can never get Putin, so we're not going to do anything. No, we're not going to give up. We're going to continue to condemn this, continue to say it's wrong, and do everything that we can to support the Ukrainian people in their fight against an aggressor state who is not just a, an aggressor state against Ukraine. Putin has declared war on the international order here, 
And part of the, interna the international order today is set in the UN Charter. And he's blatantly violated the UN Charter, committed the crime of aggression. And so if we don't call him out, we don't try to come up with mechanisms to hold him and others around him accountable, um, then we're giving up on, on having a you know, international law in the first place and international peace and stability. But so, so there are domestic uh, accountability mechanisms. There's there has been a group of, uh, of senior, just the most incredible international law scholars and experts, as well as some heads of state, the, the group of elders, former heads of state that have come out and said, hey, look, we know the UN Security Council is more is going to be more abundant on this. They're, they're, Russia will veto, they, so we can't set up an international criminal tribunal for, for, you know, for Ukraine. But what about the General Assembly? So if the General Assembly gets together and says, look, we're going to set up our own, uh, set up a, a set up a, a, a special tribunal. And if all the countries agree, um, and they pool their universal jurisdiction, except the, all these countries are parties to the Geneva Conventions, um, and they can pool their universal jurisdiction together um, there and set up a special tribunal. There's an, and, and specifically for the crime of aggression, because the ICC, even though it's investigating war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, and genocide, and I don't know if it's investigating genocide yet, um, but war crimes and crimes against humanity, um, it cannot try the crime of aggression for Russia. And that's really, you know, one of the, the preeminent crimes that, that Putin and his colleagues have committed. And so that's why a special tribunal set up by the General Assembly, um, pooling their universal jurisdiction as an idea that's gaining more traction. And so the world community can do what the world community wants to do. With enough voices, they can do it. It was four victors in World War II that got together. They, the world didn't tell them. They didn't look at, at, at a charter say, we can do this. They did it. Right, so with enough will, collective will, but it's 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 going to take leadership, leadership by not just the United States, because a lot of the U.S. has ceded some of their leadership and their soft power because of its engagement in torture during the global war on terror, and because of the, you know, the torture infected uh, military commissions, in which we say we're trying to provide accountability. So, um, I mean, I like the fact the United States is being strong in this and taking the lead, but the United States has to to bring everybody else uh, along with us. And that's where countries like Germany um, have done, and, and Germany has the, you know, has, has really good reason to be doing this, has been trying to provide some universal jurisdiction for, for these crimes of atrocity. These atrocities. Now, you, you mentioned that um, there could be this special tribunal, but set up by the General Assembly. Is the Security Council and the membership of Russia, which means they can veto anything the Security Council does, can they veto anything from the General Assembly? No, because the General Assembly was never supposed to be, have, have the power to have any kind of coercive power. So it's using the General Assembly in a way that it was never designed to do in recognition of the fact that the UN Security Council is broken at this point regarding this issue. And so it's we're on new, new ground, new territory. Russia can't stop it unless... Russia wants to engage in war against it, but then you get you get to the issue of well, how how and when would you provide have, you know, personal jurisdiction, and so that's where I want to get into the in the in absentia com, com, um, comment from earlier. So the International Criminal Court right now specifically prohibits in absentia trials, and why the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in Article 14 says you have a right, a defendant has a right to be there, a right to be present at their trial. That can be waived, which is very unusual. Um, it has to be clear and unequivocal and voluntary. But for the most part, there's there's a, a fundamental due process component to having a defendant there. And there, it undermines the legitimacy of a tribunal, of a trial, if the defendant actually isn't there. Um, so there's concern, and I think the ICC you know, had grave concerns about that. They they, some of the judges there made some some comments regarding um, uh, the trial of, of Mr. Bonda, who still hasn't been tried. Perhaps if someone is intentionally absconding from the law, we can go ahead and hold uh, a trial in absentia. But so far, the ICC has has not done that, and I think for for the reasons the the legitimacy concerns there. Um, but that doesn't damn I mean, you for the special tribunal that was set up for Lebanon. There has been in absentia trials, so there there have been some different. Um, approaches to this, but for the most part, there's a grave legitimacy concern and the idea that you know that you have a right to be present at your trial. So, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens after this. But for the crime of aggression, and that's the one where a special tribunal would be would be warranted. The crime of aggression is not limited to just Mr. Putin. Um, under the ICC, it's limited to those with the leadership role. 
under some of the domestic crimes, like the Ukraine has, has the crime of aggression in its own criminal code. So does Belarus. Um, and those are not limited just to the leaders of the country. Um, but the reason the crime of aggression classically has a leadership component to it is because that a soldier that's engaging, for example, in the conflict right now, it had no no influence over whether or not they that Russia went went to war, right? Um, but maybe some of these oligarchs and the the top generals that that are associated with Mr. Putin um, did have exert influence enough influence to make them um, guilty, right? Uh, complicit in in this in invading a, a fellow country. So. So the idea of the crime of aggression um, being prosecuted within a particular court, a special tribunal, just because Putin might not be in the docket doesn't mean some other folks won't be. And again, then it goes down to, are they going to travel? Are they ever going to leave Russia? Maybe not. But um, in, in that connection, let's end with talking about, is there some remediation necessary in the rules of war or in the enforcement mechanisms, or in the UN itself, in, in its charter? Is there something that you have observed from your experience and your scholarship in this area that might help to make it clearer? And, and I'm one of those people who does believe that if you hold person one accountable, person two is less likely to do something. But to hold them really personally accountable, um, I, I was um, I had a fellowship from the EEC and was able to be a part of the trial of Klaus Barbie in Lyon, and that was you know 40 years well not 40 years yeah for almost 40 years after the war he was finally captured and brought to justice in France and um, that doesn't maybe stop someone very much if it takes 40 years and he lived a free life until then. So what I'm, I'm looking for ways that we could improve the law. I, th I've, I think there are ways we can domestically improve the law in the United States. And that's where I, where, what I have focused on, the fact that the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the military's internal penal code, just like California has a penal code, the military has one. It's written by Congress under their Article One authority to do so and the responsibility to do so. It doesn't have any war crimes in it. However, the Military Commissions Act of 2006 that was amended in 2009 for detainees down on Guantanamo Bay has a whole bunch of enumerated war crimes. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If we can do it for the detainees at Guantanamo Bay, why can't we list out war crimes for our own soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen? Not that they commit that many, but when they do, they need to be held clearly accountable. Why not? Why? Because it, for first, first and foremost, because it's the right thing to do and we have legal obligations to do so but also for our own legitimacy. If the United States does not show that we, ho we hold our own accountable, war crimes are going to happen when there is war, but it's about how a, a nation deals with them. If we deal with them by having a full and fair investigation and an appropriate punishment through a, through a, through a, a criminal trial, that's how we show that we're, we're not speaking out of both sides of our mouth. Um, and so I would like to see that there are enumerated war crimes in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I would actually like to see them actually tried um, and not just swept under the rug and, and, and um, administrative measures being taken for what, what are actually are war crimes um, by the U.S. I, I, would, I wish we could have had some accountability for the torture um, that was engaged in by the CIA um, over the long course of the, of the global war on terror. We still haven't had that. And that, that's lessened our soft power around the world for when we say, hey, we need to have accountability here. So the ICC prosecutor's office actually is engaged in a preliminary examination of, of the U.S. Um, for its actions in, Af in, Af in Afghanistan. Um, again, the United States is not a party to the ICC. Um, I wish we were. It would give us more give us more credibility. Um, but when you said, you know, is there anything, you know, the big legal ego architecture that I would like to see change? I think everyone sees the, the problems with the U.N. Charter. I mean, and the, the problems with the U.N. Security Council. I don't know what the answer is because folks will get Russia off of there. Russia has has the most nuclear weapons of any country in the world. Um, I don't know how you force them off of this. At some point, I mean, international law, I think it was Lauterpach that said, you know, it's at you know, the vanishing point of, of law, or, or and he said, uh, the laws of war, international, if international law is kind of already on the vanishing edge, the laws of war are even more vanishing. 
I mean, at some point when we don't have the enforcement mechanism on the global stage, I think the International Criminal Court was a great start. I wish the United States would join it and give it and bolster it and provide it greater legitimacy because it, the juice is worth the squeeze here. Right. Maybe we'll have a little bit of risk there, but the the benefit that can be gained in providing greater accountability um, and and bolstering those norms that it stands for, I think, is is so worth it. So I'd like to see the United States lead the charge and doing things like I mean, the United States hasn't hasn't joined the treaty regarding the prohibition of cluster munitions. Right. Even though we haven't we've barely used them for the last 20 years. It's like, why are we holding out? Is it really worth it for that one time? We might want to use them on the DMZ in Korea. Really? Is it really worth having us stand out as a pariah state with with with, you know, the few other states that haven't outlawed this? I mean, you know, I, I would like some consistency there and some better decisions being made regarding let's not just be so narrow minded where we want to keep and maintain maximum flexibility for the tiny one if. Let's take the moral high ground and, and make the hard decisions um, in order to be a true leader. Um, that's what that's what I'd like to see. But I mean, if I could figure out that how to to revise the UN Security Council and make it work more effectively, I'd I'd, I'd be at the UN right now. I think, um, but I'm not going to give up hope. And the fact that all of these laws are a reaction to the last war, and so this is an awful, horrible, you know, travesty and catastrophe that's occurring uh, right now on the global stage. Uh, but I do believe that out of this will become better norms and better laws. At least I, I have to think that because I'm not. Well, the one give thing on I it. hope happens is Putin is held accountable, um, both that he is militarily defeated, and that he is held accountable for the crimes that we are seeing, and that we don't ever have to see this kind of behavior again. But when you have madmen like. Hitler or like Putin, who totally ignore what is the norms of civility and civilization, I'm afraid that we haven't quite come up with anything. And the same is true in the criminal code. Uh, criminals exist because they don't care about the code. And they're willing to pay the consequence of going to jail if they get caught. And they evade capture. And in this case, Putin is holed up in a very large country. And unless he loses political power there and they turn him over, he may never be held accountable for the destruction and humanitarian crisis he's creating. And that's, to me, very sad. But we thank you very much for your expertise and for helping us to understand the difference between a war crime and the uh, crime of aggression and what the basis is for these very important things for all of us to understand what the powers of the UN are and what the powers of every state are. So thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm sorry this was such a big issue and I was all over the map on a lot of these things because they're all interconnected. But I, I applaud anyone that is just trying to understand some of this because when we can try to understand it, we feel like, okay, um, there, perhaps we can exactly. all contribute to the solutions and to remedies as well. Thank so you. Thank you. Best of luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening or watching this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to us on YouTube as we're on video. Like this video, um, press the bell to get our weekly videos every Wednesday. And then you can also subscribe wherever you follow your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And leave us a five-star review and rating if you listen to Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot.